0: We are the only doctors some of these folks will ever have. To just sit with that and understand the roots of that statement is incredibly important, right? We have a healthcare system that is the most expensive one in the world. And yet, we have folks who we are all they have in the emergency room. And so with that, I think we have an incredible opportunity to really provide some inflection point moments in the lives of vulnerable people. The second thing is that if you really care about people and if you really care about listening to their stories, there's no place where you see humanity most in the raw uh, than in the emerging. We are are subject to the mortal drama of what it means to be human on a nightly basis. We see the everyday violence of poverty.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry, and I'm the host of Revision Path, an award-winning weekly interview podcast that showcases the world's best black designers, developers, and digital creatives. If you're looking to get inspired, then tune in each week for in-depth conversations that explore the creative journey, including the processes, thoughts, and motivations behind these awesome creators shaping the future of art, design, and technology. Hi listeners, thanks so much for joining and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Alistair Martin. Now scroll all the way back to episode 44 and you'll see that Alistair first joined us then. Between then and now, a lot has happened. He has become the CEO of A Healthier Democracy. He also just completed a year in Washington, D.C. as a White House Fellow. Alistair and his organization continue to work at the intersection of civic health and health equity. He himself is research faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School Behavioral Insights Group, and clinical faculty at Harvard Med School in the Center for Social Justice and Health Equity. Three of the initiatives that fall under the umbrella of a healthier democracy include Vote ER, Get Waivered, and Got Vax. Simply, Vote ER helps register voters through kiosks and emergency departments. Also helps healthcare workers register patients. Also helps healthcare workers register healthcare workers. Get Waivered is a program that helps ensure patients with addiction get the recovery treatment they need. And Got Vax is a program to help vaccinate high risk communities where they live and where they work. It's patient centered, it's health designed. Okay, the next initiative that you're going to hear about when the conversation begins is something called Link Health. And I really love this initiative. Did you know? audience, that a good percentage of the U.S. population does not have access to high-speed internet. And guess what? High-speed internet is crucial for telehealth. Let's get to the conversation.
0: We have uh, another initiative that we're beginning to launch uh, here in Boston called Link Health. And the problem that we're trying to solve with Link Health is that COVID triggered this pretty dramatic uh, uh, Increase in the use of telehealth and telemedicine in this country and that's good in general It's a good thing it it, it provides us another opportunity to reach our patients lowers access barriers in, in many cases. However It can be an incredibly bad thing if we are not careful. It can potentially widen the digital divide why Because in this country we still have almost 25% of the population that doesn't have access to high-speed internet and so Thankfully, the Biden administration is all over this. They passed um, a provision in the bipartisan infrastructure law called the Affordable Connectivity Program. It's up to $75 a month to pay a patient's internet bills, and it gives them $100 to buy a new computer. Uh, Over 40% of all American households are eligible for this, which is incredible. But we have only just scratched the surface in terms of signing people up. So we've only got 25% of the eligible population signed up. And so Link Health is all about using healthcare spaces in healthcare settings to get people signed up for the Affordable Connectivity Program so that they leave the waiting room with money in their pocket to pay their internet bill and money to buy a computer or a laptop or a tablet. And so we've just gotten started here in Boston. We've done... A number of clinics helping people get access to the the program.
1: Yeah, I saw this and uh, I went bananas. I think it's fantastic, and I think it identifies a really really important need. What we saw in Philadelphia was this amazing expansion during COVID of the use of telehealth. Emergency departments volumes dropped; no one wanted to come because no one wanted to get infected with COVID. Urgent cares closed, and there was a real need. Uh, what we saw is. Many of us got educated quickly on the use of the software, and we were ready to go. And we had a lot of calls, but those calls were from people, to your point, that had the literacy to utilize software and hardware, uh, who had access to internet. And, you know, a lot of times people have phones, but the phones sometimes are audio only. They don't have access to the video. So I think I love this initiative. I think it's addressing a huge need. And I think many people in cities or many people that are in higher resourced or uh, higher socioeconomic standard areas, they have no idea how this change, this pivot in healthcare and the use of healthcare resources is affecting many people, i.e., many people can't even use this quote tool.
0: That's right. That's right. And if we're not careful, you know, we are going to shift to you know, these really cool, exciting digital interventions. And we are going to leave behind a whole proportion of our, uh, uh of our patient population because they simply can't get on to the internet.
1: hundred percent. One of the things we also saw with the use of telehealth was if people, uh, didn't speak English, if English wasn't their first language and the access and utilization of language translation, what have you seen with this?
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a very, very good point. I mean, the data demonstrates that um, communities of color have even worse uh, digital equity disparities. Uh, They are less likely to have a laptop or a home computer and less likely to have the kind of high speed Internet that can support uh, things like telehealth and telemedicine interventions. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when we're out there, um, we have uh, a number of community health centers that we've partnered with in predominantly uh, Spanish-speaking uh, portions of, of our city here in Boston, and um, you know I think the the, the interesting thing is that um, we are all set when it comes to Spanish-speaking uh, resources. The FCC has done a really good job getting the website set up for that. Uh, but what we're what we're what we're learning actually is we're struggling with some of the other languages. I'll give you an example. Last Friday we just we did not have a Cape Verdean. Uh, translator on hand. Um, and it turns out that that was a population, uh, that, uh, was served by this community health center. So, so, you know, really, I think one of the lessons that we're learning here is, um, you know, you've got to really work closely with the community to see what exactly do they need from a language support uh, standpoint and how can we best match our resources to that?
1: Yeah. And Vote ER, um, the first initiative you described, you know, that came on my radar and a bunch of emergency department, clinician, colleagues, teammates, uh, wore their badges. And one of my observations is yes, there was signing up of patients, but there was a lot of signing up of each other, uh, other hospital colleagues, other hospital workers and other departments.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I think, um, Healthcare providers across the country are seeing, you know, the brokenness of of this healthcare system that that we work in on a nightly basis, and and we have a decision to make. You know, what what do we do uh, in the face of that brokenness? Right? It's almost like it's like that to use a bad uh, analogy. It's like that uh, that scene in the Matrix where Neo gets uh, gets gets a choice between the red pill and the blue pill. It's like. You, you you can choose to um, uh, not see uh, how bad things have gotten, uh, uh, or you can wake up to the reality of of where we are, and you can decide to do something about it. And what we saw with voter ER is healthcare providers across the country deciding to do something really simple, which is just make sure that you are registered to vote. Right? The data demonstrates, unfortunately, that physicians vote at up to twenty percent lower rates than the average voter, and so we got to take care of our own house first. And we're seeing that all across the country with Votear. Proud to have over fifty thousand healthcare providers across the country wearing those Votear badges and helping themselves and their patients get registered to vote.
1: Hundred percent. You just finished a year in Washington D.C. as a White House fellow. Uh, what did you learn about yourself?
0: yeah it's a great question i mean I'll start with just what what I knew before I came in and what I was hoping to learn during the year. I knew that i had um, I had developed a a skill set at grassroots mobilizing, and I knew that while I was good at that, that was not going to be enough. I knew that if I was really uh, interested in making the kinds of transformational, transformational, and sustainable change, I was going to have to figure out this dance between the grassroots and the grass tops, right? Because the federal government, right, is the is the is the best way to impact the most people in the most number of ways, and so I knew I had to figure out how to get that coordination right between the grassroots organizing I had been doing and translating that into systemic change at the grass tops. What I learned about myself is that in that process, I had I'd always sort of shunned, you know, sort of the the, the, the inside game work, right? I would always shunned the like federal government or the, 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 the formal authority work. I'd much rather, as Steve Jobs would say, I'd much rather be a pirate than work for the Navy, right? Um, I thought that I would not like being in the federal government. Uh, and because it would be too slow or too bureaucratic. And it just to me was just another puzzle, another challenge to try and solve, another place to try and figure out how do you make change here quickly and how do you work with people. And bottom line, Reese, I think, you know, I I learned what you already know, and that is that it comes down to relationships and how you build, sustain, and nurture those relationships. It's all people at the end of the day. Um, and so I think, uh, if I, if I could share one thing, it's that, um, you know, I, I, um, i i I reinforced how important it is to take care of people and 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 to really uh sustain and nurture relationships between the folks that you're working with,
1: yeah yeah, speaking of relationships, you've been asked a lot about mentoring and mentorship. you identify as a mentee, you identify as a mentor. you know can you think of a time that a mentor mentee relationship just went bad and it just went wrong or you had to Break up with your mentor or your mentor broke up with you?
0: I don't think I have a good answer for you on that one. Um I maybe this is a bad thing, but I um I think that if someone has taken the time to learn enough about me to mentor me, um I want that person in my life moving forward. Now it's possible that we will shift our relationship in the And the nature of the relationship will change. The cadence of talking and the expectations might, 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 might transform. But if, but if someone has cared enough to learn about me and my work, I want to keep that person in, in my orbit, right? Because ultimately uh, you just never know what life has in store for you. And you never know, actually, if that mentor who you worked with eight years ago on that project um, will be very, very, very useful as someone who will provide some, you know, clear counsel on an issue, or will have expertise that you need in the future. And so, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, quick to discard or, uh, you know, sort of let let those kinds of relationships go, because I think that. I just don't know everything, quite frankly. And um, I, I don't know who in the future might be useful in terms of doing this critical work. Like, the work is hard enough that we're trying to do here. Um, and I'm going to need all the help I can get uh, to make sure it's done in the right way. And, and that's going to require you know, surrounding myself with people who are smarter than me in really specific ways.
1: Yeah. Hence the finding allies and developing your reservoir of people.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: So you and I are both emergency physicians, and we see it all. And before we pressed play, you were talking about how we're perhaps some of the best people to act, act on the problems. Uh, Don't look the other way. Don't wait for someone else to do it. In fact, the first time we recorded, you're like, no one's coming to help. No one's coming to help. We have to do this. Um, and so for our audience members that haven't spent any time in the emergency department, don't ever even want to visit. And believe me, patients say all the time, doc, I really don't want to be here. And I say to them, listen, I completely get it. I completely get it. Um, you know, what is it that we see? What is it that we see that gets you going, that makes you act?
0: Yeah, particularly now, I don't know how things are for you guys in Philly, but, uh, man, our wait times have have multiplied and, you know, things are, are really, really bad. Right. And I think there's a, there's a, um, things are always challenging, um, in the health, in the, in the ER. You're know, right. We are, we are asked to do so much, but I think in particular now, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but it's certainly a lot worse than I left from, uh, when I went down to DC. Look, it's a privilege, honestly, to, to be in the emergency room. Um, I'll start with first, and you know this recently. We are the only doctors some of these folks will ever have, right? And to just sit with that and understand the roots of that statement is incredibly important, right? We have a healthcare system that is the most expensive one in the world, and yet we have folks who we are all they have in the emergency room. Uh, and so with that, I think we have an incredible opportunity to really you know, provide some inflection point moments in the lives of vulnerable people. I like think The second thing is that if you really care about people and if you really care about, um, you know, listening to their stories, there's no there's no place where you see humanity most in the raw uh, than in the emerging. We are we are subject to the mortal drama. Of what it means to be human on a nightly basis, we see the everyday violence of poverty, and I think that with that, you you have I think a responsibility as an ER physician um, to do something with that, to carry those stories, and to transform them into potential into into potential energy that can potentially uh, address some of the policy issues uh, that that are that are that are causing our patients' problems in the first place. Um, and then I think the last piece is that, you know, we are, uh, uh, we are also there in people's, you know, worst days of their lives. And, you know, it's an, it's, it's a privilege, I think, just to simply sit in the rubble with people. Right. And often what our patients are asking us is like, can you listen while I feel this? And, uh, that has nothing to do with medicine like, and everything to do with medicine, if you know what I mean. Like it has nothing to do with the biological or the pathophys. It has everything to do with, can you be a, uh, a good human being and listen to another, uh, human being feeling, uh, you know, some, uh, some really intense feelings, uh, in a, in a hard time in their life. And that's just an incredible, incredible privilege.
1: Yeah. You and I are on the same page. And in fact, um, you've shared that you have an active meditation practice. I do as well, uh, coupled with some yoga, and what I've noticed is the more uh, I can maintain that practice and be present with that practice for myself, and then I bring that to work, I have noticed a change with the intensity of my interactions and my relationship and of the understanding of patients.
0: Yeah, and I take it a step further. I mean, I I I agree with all of that. And you know, one thing I'm beginning to notice is, you know, what what I derive um uh satisfaction from when I'm meditating is this self-transcendence, right? This ability to sort of like move beyond the daily chatter, the like, you know, everyday kind of, yeah, you know, the annoyances of 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 living in in our um in our like always constantly on world um and it's it's like this this like ability to step away from the self uh that is important when i'm meditating um you know i'm finding actually that that like as i you know i've been you know in, in emergency medicine now for about eight years as i'm as i'm getting um more experienced i'm realizing that there is a certain meditative element to taking care of another human being too. It's this, again, self-transcendence. You are leaving yourself to an extent at the door and, and really focusing 100% of your efforts on listening to this person, being attentive and attuned to them, and really trying to uh, put yourself aside and and, uh, and be there for that person. It's, in, in essence, it's like the most present I think I ever am is in the emergency department, right? Because you're just there, right? You have to be, because if you're not, you miss them.
1: Yeah. That presence amidst noise, amidst beeping, signals, uh, (laughs) um, screaming, uh, all sorts of noises of crying, pain, um, that ability to find that quiet and that, as uh, is said, that independence of solitude is is what emergency medicine is about. I don't know if you have this experience when you're at Penn Station or Grand Central Station or fill in the blank. I look around and I think, this is just like the emergency department, this chaos, these noises, but somehow it all works and you can find your way to where you need to go.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right.
1: Health design is one of my particular interests, sort of patient-centered, person-centered Um end user utility and designing so that it really helps and keeps that person central to the design iteration brainstorming process so how does a healthier democracy health design and use the end user as part of the process
0: it's a great 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 question so the first thing i'll say is is it's a sort of a a strange metaphor but 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 stick with me on this you know, you, you and I know that you can't, you can't transfuse someone blood through a twenty-four gauge needle. You can't expect that you are going to get uh, uh, someone resuscitated, uh, you know, through a butterfly, right? Similarly, you can't expect to uh, create transformative change in the healthcare space without the infrastructure right? Without the organizations and without the logistical and administrative support to get that work done. Uh, There are, there are ideas uh, that healthcare providers have all across this country about how to make the healthcare system better. And time and time again, those providers find, number one, they're tired, they're working, you know, uh, long shifts. And two, it's hard to really uh, think about, well, what do I do next? I've got an idea. I've got the beginning of a plan, but where do I go next to begin to sort of put this in motion? And, um, and, and, that's, and that's what we are doing with A Healthy Democracy is really thinking about, okay, now you've got a plan. You've got an idea. Let's put the patient at the center of that. And let's make sure that we can think through this in a behaviorally uh, uh, intelligent way in terms of uh, using behavioral science to really create um, nudges that make that uh, intervention uh, more seamless and uh, done in a, in a better way. And let's get to work and let's see if we can get it done. Um, and so I think your your point about, you know, having behavioral design be at the center is, is critically important.
1: Yeah. Do you bring patients into the room? Do you bring caregivers into the room and ask them, would this work? Would this not work? Would you do this? Would you use that?
0: Absolutely. And I'll give you an example of that. So with Get Waivered, uh, when we do our get wavered sessions, right? When we get people uh, these uh, DAX waivers that we talked about, uh, so they go out and provide prescribe Suboxone or Buprenorphine. Uh, we actually bring patients back. One of the most important um, interventions that we do is we find patients who in our in the emergency department that we are getting people waived. Uh, we actually, you know, find someone who is in recovery. And bring them back to talk to those clinicians and, uh, and tell them their story about how, you know, because someone cared, because someone went the extra distance, the extra mile, and chose to uh, help get them connected to uh, medication treatment, they got their life back. They got their job back. They got their marriage back. Um, and then the patients tell them, and in the future, here's how, uh, just so you know, uh, uh, here's how the way you communicate to me lands on me. And here are the things that I want you to know, uh, now that you are out there helping patients with this newfound power, um, of, uh, of a buprenorphine, uh, prescription. And so, you know, keeping patients at the center and listening to them again, it comes back to those who are most proximal to the problem are most proximal to the solution. And patients and healthcare providers really, uh, I think are the source of, uh, of the knowledge for what we need to, to make things right in our healthcare system.
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. That being said, I'm sure like, you know, I'm team Alistair. Like I, I, I love what you're doing. I love your work. I believe in your work. It aligns with my values. You must have naysayers. You must have the, nah, that'll never work. Nah, there's no funding for that. These people don't, they're not interested in our help. You know, we, 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 we work with naysayers all the time and I'm wondering, you know, have you seen any patterns about the naysayers and how do you navigate those people?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really good question. So the first thing I'll say is that I learned a long time ago that actually the naysayers have a tremendous amount of information for me. And I, you know, I think the first the first step is separating the bullshit from the, the real genuine concern, um, because there are people who just are not interested because their egos are involved or they're not interested because they, you know, have a bone to pick or an axe to grind. And, and that's important to discern and distinguish what is genuine concern and what is not when there's genuine concern. Boy, I listen. And I'm hungry for that information, because the more I can understand why what we're proposing is not going to work, man, there are lots of secrets in there for how we're going to make it work better in the future. Um, I I took a transformational leadership class back at uh, the Kennedy School, and um, the the lesson of one of the sectors, one of the, the chapters was keep your opposition close. And I take that as a metaphor, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to like get lunch with them every night, but like, or every, every day, but, but it does mean for me that I have to listen and try to understand, um, what is it about this that doesn't work for you? And I'm not going to, not necessarily going to change the whole approach, but perhaps there are ways in which I might be able to uh, adapt an approach that works for a larger audience. Now, I'll say that I'm all about sequencing Risa, right? So the first step for me is always identifying allies and mobilizing the support that, I, that we already have and getting the first 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of folks who are already on board, getting them activated and mobilized. That's a critical step that most people, I think, uh, 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 miss. They, they jump to uh, trying to battle it out or negotiate with the opposition when they haven't actually mobilized their own base of support first. So I think that's, that's kind of the, the two things that I would say on that reason.
1: You use your voice. You are advocating. Uh, what would be your call to action for people that want to start using their voice? And what for you was sort of, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, of, of speaking up and using your voice?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I I think Risa and we we've spoken about this in the past, but I I had a I had a near death experience when I was pretty young, when I was sixteen years old uh, as a as a senior in high school, and you know by all rights I um you know I, I either could have died that night or could should have been disabled in a way that that would have been transformative for me. But I wasn't, I was spared. And I think that what has happened to me since then, I think I've felt since that moment, like I've been living this, this post-mortem bonus round, right? Like this, this, this extra life that I have now. And so with it, I have a responsibility to use this, this time that I have left. And it's very clear to me what, what I need to do. Um, and, and that is, I've got to create a life that metaphorically speaking, puts its thumb on the scales uh, for vulnerable people in this country. And that's going to be first as an as an ER physician, but it won't end there. And so I think that uh, for those who are listening, you are living in, in, I think, the beginning of the golden age of healthcare provider organizing. Look around you. There are magic beanstalks uh, 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 erupting everywhere. There there's, there's We Got Us. There's the work with, with Get Us PPE. You saw across the country providers mobilizing around that. There's Vote ER. There's the Reproductive Healthcare Coalition that the American Medical Women's Association leads on abortion access. I mean, you are living in the golden age, I think, of provider organizing. you got to get in the game, right, because you've got a decision to make. There's there's a, a quote that I think about a lot um, uh, that James Baldwin Uh, uh, said. And that is that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And so you'll have a decision to make out there listeners. And that is, you know, you, you see how the healthcare system is and what will you do now that you see, because you can't unsee it. And so we invite you to get in the game.
1: The Risa wrap up. Major thanks to Dr. Alistair Martin, Alistair. And as I told him, I am Team Alistair. What I really like about his approach is his welcoming in, his warmth, his openingness, the fact that he doesn't close doors on people and on relationships. He is collecting allies, he says. He's collecting his reservoir of people. And you listeners should try to be a part of that reservoir. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity, and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano De Porto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.